0: In terms of announcements, just a reminder that uh, we have the church picnic planned for Saturday, October the 19th. That'll be out at Orlando Solace's place out near Patterson. We'll have all that information posted and available so you know how to get out there. And also the men's prayer breakfast uh, scheduled for Saturday, uh, September the 21st. In terms of a couple of prayer requests, put one out today related to Craig Williams and also... I uh, didn't get one out, but Rick Wyke, who is uh, part of our Friday Pastors group, he and his wife always come to the Chafer Conference, and they have a beach house, also one of those barrier islands out there by North Carolina that they just finished about six or eight months ago, remodeling and fixing up and repairing from the last hurricane. So we, we, uh, all along that East Coast, we've got folks who are live streamers and who are good friends and family members of folks who are here in the congregation, so we need to be be in prayer for them. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers. And the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. If you notice every one of those verses that I recite focus on the absolute sufficiency of God's power and God's grace in our lives, which fits perfectly with uh, the study that we are <clears throat> involved in in second Peter one, two through four. So let's bow our heads together and we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure that we're spiritually prepared to study the word and to uh, enjoy our fellowship with the Lord as we learn more about him and all that he has provided for us. Let's pray. Our Father, as we study the scriptures, we are impressed with how many times we are reminded of your power, how many times we are reminded of your knowledge and the importance of us, for us of knowing you and knowing uh, all about your character, and your attributes, your power, and all that you have provided for us, that on the basis of that knowledge, we're able to grow, and it is on the basis of that knowledge that we are able to trust you and that that is the major test in life. We face all kinds of tests, all kinds of problems and adversities and difficulties, and and many, many times things just do not turn out the way we want or hope or wish or desire. But, Father, we know that your grace is sufficient for whatever we find in, in the circumstances of our life. And our happiness and our joy is not dependent upon the details of life, but it's dependent upon our relationship with you. Now, Father, as we study tonight, we pray that you would continue to remind us of your sufficiency and your power, and that we may learn to trust in you rather than to rely upon human viewpoint systems of thinking, human viewpoint solutions, because there is no help from man. The only help comes from you, and we pray this in Christ's name, amen. You can open your Bibles if you want to to, uh, 2 Peter chapter 1. We're going to go through a little review of where we are, so we understand how, why, why we're emphasizing, why I'm emphasizing the things I'm emphasizing uh, this evening, and then we will uh, go to some other passages in the Scripture. So, the issue tonight, as we continue to study about the sufficiency of God's grace, is the real question that underlies everything: is Are we going to trust in human solutions, are we going to trust in God's solutions? And that's the real issue. And one of the deceptive things. Now, the reason I'm bringing this up is because the core issue in Second Peter has to do with false teachers, and that has to do with deception. And there's a lot of deception out there by people who are uh, <coughs> wolves in sheep's clothing, as Paul warned the Ephesians. They are there are a lot of leaders very well-known and highly respected and highly visible leaders in American evangelicalism that are pretty solid in most things, but they fall apart when it comes to the sufficiency of Scripture. They have lost that battle, and one of the reasons that I'm spending a lot of time on this is because this is one of two or three passages that really emphasizes the sufficiency of Scripture, but that is a Primary place where Satan has been attacking the Christian church for the last 150 years. And I always remember a quote that I just paraphrased from Martin Luther, who said that if you defend the castle or the fortress at every point other than that at which it is being attacked, you will lose the battle. And this is one of those attack points that is so vital and many of us because of the environment in which we have been in which we have grown up in which we've been influenced by the world system around us have been compromised in our spiritual life in this area in ways we can't imagine because we just absorbed these human viewpoint ideas uh, so readily in our culture and that's not unusual that's been a problem in every Every culture going back to the fall of Adam is that the culture basically is built on a lot of ideas and values that may or may not have have some compatibility with with scripture but rarely does the do, rarely does a culture truly emphasize and the importance of dependence upon God. We had that to a large degree in the founding centuries of this nation. It wasn't perfect. It wasn't complete. It was maybe 30 or 40% of the worldview at the time, but that's better than it is now where it's like 0.003% of the worldview today. And so we get influenced by that, and we are uh, unaware of that. So just to remind us of the passage in chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, <coughs> Paul says, As, and that should be translated, since his divine power, emphasizing God's omnipotence, has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these, that is, these promises, you may be partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And so we looked at <clears throat> at the at verse 3 and it starts off with this causal clause probably the best way to handle it in English since his divine power using the Greek word dunamis emphasizing that it, it what lies behind the promises of God is the power of God that he is more able to deal with your problems, whatever they are, however long they've been there, than we can even imagine. He has the ability to deal with it because he's omniscient and he is omnipotent. And so it's his power, it's his ability that has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. These two words one emphasizes our physical, Life and sustenance that He supplies, what we need so that we can carry out the mission He has for us, and then the spiritual life, which has to do with everything related to our spiritual growth. And as we get into looking at this particular, um, at this particular section and at this particular passage, what we see is that uh, the Scripture emphasizes emphasizes the sufficiency of God's provision, that he's given us everything's part of our spiritual life. And every problem that you and I face in life, it doesn't matter if it is a problem related to uh, horrible things that have taken place in, in your life. Uh, we think of so many people who have grown up in horrible homes with horrible parents, and they have dealt with all kinds of physical abuse, or sexual abuse, or emotional abuse. And it doesn't matter what kind of situation you've grown up with, culturally, in terms of being um, being the object of people's hate and vindictiveness and a lack of, or a lack of education. Whatever the circumstance is, there it's not something that is uncommon. That's why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, there is no testing taken you, but such as is common to man. You may think it's unusual. It may be you even unique among your circle of acquaintances or friends, but it's not unusual in the history of Christianity. It's not unusual in the history of mankind. And it doesn't surprise God, no matter how horrible it was, no matter how difficult it was, no matter what those circumstances were, God was fully aware of it uh, throughout all of eternity. Didn't surprise him when it happened to you, and he made the right provisions for us in his word so that we could surmount whatever those challenges might be, and that's that's the issue here. He has provided to us, that's grace, given to us all things that pertain to our physical life and godliness by which he's been given to us these great and precious promises. And that's the uh, Greek word there, dereomai, which emphasizes his grace. Anytime you see the word give from, and God's the subject, it emphasizes his grace. And that it's through his promises. That's what he's revealed in his word. And so once again, we see that it's the word that's the solution to life's problems, whatever they are. And that's how the Christian church has understood this for almost 2,000 years until you have the advent of the modern problems that relate to, to modern psychology offering an alternative solution, an additional solution in many places. But if we trust in God, then it leads us into deeper fellowship that we may be partakers. That means sharers. It relates to fellowship of the divine nature. We are being conformed to the image of Christ Romans 8, uh, 28 to 30. And then what I think is most important here is that all of this is related to escaping the corruption that is in the world through lust. That's the basic problem. When it talks about corruption and lust, it's talking about the sin nature and all of the consequences of sin that we deal with uh, on a day-to-day basis. And so... Uh, we started talking about the sufficiency of Scripture a couple of weeks ago, and I just want to review uh, a few things here to uh, catch us up. The foundation is Scripture because it comes from God. It is sufficient. He revealed it. He is the author of it. And all of the language in 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17 has to do with dealing with different aspects of its efficiency, then the purpose is that so the believer, the man of God, may be uh, fully qualified, complete, not leaving anything out, um, and a thoroughly equipped, completely equipped, totally equipped to face any situation in life. That's for every good work, whatever it might be. So the first point was that sufficiency sufficiency means that it's enough, it's adequate, it meets the needs, it's all we need, we don't need anything else, that nobody is going to come up with additional insights that improve the situation outside of the Bible. It is uh, the Scripture alone. We saw that uh, in the second point, we saw some key Scriptures. We looked at Psalm 1 and we looked at uh, Jeremiah 17, 8 and following, and those key Scriptures focused us on Uh, on God's provision in his word that the uh, wise man, the believer who soaked his soul in the word of God is going to flourish. Doesn't mean he's going to always have good circumstances. In many cases, if you look at some of these men in the scriptures like Jeremiah or Isaiah, and you discover that they did not have great circumstances, but that they had a tremendous relationship with the Lord And that's what made a difference. But also, we ended with the last verse there in that section in Jeremiah 17 and verse 9, which focuses on the problem. This is where you see the radical difference between a a biblical view of man, a biblical anthropology is the technical theological term. How do we understand the nature of man? You'll have a lot of people give lip service to this in the Christian world, and I've heard some of the foremost uh, Christian psychologists speak and have studied their writings over the years, and they always talk a good talk. But when you get down to the practicalities of watching what they actually do when they are uh, counseling people, they're no different from their secular Uh, secular counterparts other than they wrap their language in the facade, in the veneer of biblical language. That's why it's so deceptive. And they all come under this category of false teachers, which is what Peter is warning his congregation about. And what I, as a pastor today, need to warn you about is there are so many false teachings, serious false teachings that have been accepted and when you come to a situation like this, those of us who have taken a very strong stand on the sufficiency of Scripture are viewed as troglodytes, dinosaurs. We are cavemen, as it were, and we need to upgrade our our understanding. There are great insights that are gained from modern behavioral sciences. But the problem is, as we'll get into, is that the behavioral sciences have all interpreted facts. There's no such thing as a raw fact. We studied this a little bit when we were studying um, in apologetics. There's no such thing as a raw fact. There's no such thing as a brute fact. Every fact is instantly interpreted by whoever's looking at it. You look at a fossil, you're out hiking, and you see a fossil in a rock. First thing you think of is the flood. That's not the first thing an evolutionist thinks about. He thinks about how that was laid down in millions of years, and he wants to check and make sure what layer, what kind of rock it's embedded in, and how many billions of years ago that rock was laid down. And It's instantly, it, without any thought, That's the framework that automatically interprets that. So when you see somebody exhibit a certain uh, behavior, one of the first things that should come to your mind is the sin nature. But that's not the first thing that comes to mind from the media. That's not the first thing that comes to mind. Take an example. I don't know a lot, but we'll just accept that as fact. We don't know a lot about this guy who was uh, shooting... was the shooter out there in in Odessa this last week. Horrible situation, and it's one of too many that have happened recently. One of the things that, as I've read, that is common to many of them, I don't know if it was common to him or not, not, information hasn't come out, is that many of these shooters have been on psychotropic medication or they're getting off of that kind of medication. I don't know if that was true for him. Others of them, many of them, have faced some real crises in their life. Now, I think this guy, from what I've read, what I've heard, fits a certain pattern. What happened on Saturday, what happened to him on Saturday, was the last in a series of disappointments in his life when things did not go the way he wanted them to go. I would guess that he's not much different from many other unbelievers in our culture and even many believers, and that is that he thinks he has a right to his life being the way he wants it and that he has a right to a job and he has a right to live a certain way and to have certain uh, things in his life, certain circumstances and details of life and that he should be able to get that. And as he's been prevented from doing that, he has not had the spiritual tools from Scripture to teach him anything about relying upon God, to teach him anything about right from wrong, and that you have to, uh, that anger is a sin, and that you have to, that's part of what we have to put off as we grow as as believers, we're to remove those aspects, we're to deal with the anger or bitterness or whatever it is that is a sin in our soul, and we have to deal with those things on a biblical basis. We live in a culture that is dominated by um, by self-absorption, and people are often, as, they're, as they are reared by their parents, they're not taught self-discipline, they're not taught self-control, they're not taught anything about how to control their temper. They're not punished for losing their temper. And so what happens is it gets worse and worse and worse. And so this guy gets fired from his job and he just threw a a two-year-old pity party and tantrum on Saturday afternoon nobody had taught him any different nobody taught him that it was wrong to respond to uh, disappointments by getting angry and as a result of that he takes takes it out on everybody else and this is a problem with our culture today people often ask the question what has gone wrong in our culture uh, today because we can those of us who've been around more than a couple of decades remember a time when uh, we would go to high school and especially the guys who were in the f a a or f f a the future farmers of America, the AG boys, they would be in their pickup truck and they'd have a gun rack in the back of their pickup truck, and they'd have a, their thirty thirty or their shotgun there because right after right after school and I lived in Bel Air down here in the middle of Houston. but if you went out here past what is now uh, highway uh, highway six that you went past there, you were out in hunting territory. A lot of you guys are nodding your head because you remember that. You just had to drive out there somewhere off of Fry Road or Mason Road in that area and just drive off into the rice fields, and you'd have a heyday duck hunting and goose hunting. And then you could come back and go about the rest of your day, and there were a lot of guys that did that. And when they had their pickup trucks with their uh, rifle or shotgun on the gun rack, it was not locked and it was just fine. Nobody messed with it. What happened? That was 50 years ago. What transformed our culture? What transformed our culture is it got further and further away from the Word of God, the teaching of absolute morality, the teaching of control of sinful behavior. Even if you weren't a Christian, you understood that there was behavior that was wrong and that a child should be punished, if necessary, corporally punished. But see, that has all gone away. So now we're just a bunch of uh, self-absorbed, whiny babies who have to get everything we want when we want. And I happened to look on the Drudge Report the other day, and there was an article that was talking about the fact that because of instant gratification, finding instant solutions on your smartphone, on your A tablet on your uh, searching the internet that if you didn't get something within 15 or 16 seconds, then you just flipped out. That 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 is the end of patience. Is about 15 or 16 seconds, and this is a spiritual problem. This is a problem that is affected the the result of the lack of spirituality biblical spirituality on the part of the parents probably on the part of the grandparents because this situation has become increasingly aggravated over a period of generations and so now we have we're in a total cultural collapse because we have people who don't know how to control themselves And this is not limited to those who are in a lower socioeconomic strata. It's not limited to any kind of ethnicity. It is not limited to a lack of education. We see this at the highest levels of elected office, where there's no sense of self-control or self-discipline in certain areas, and the lust patterns just run without any control whatsoever all the way down to the lowest levels uh, of, of society. And you can go out, and if we were able to look at the life histories of many of these people, if not all of them that are um, homeless and are trying to get gain money as they're begging at the different intersections, that that's what's happened with them. They have just fed their sin nature... They've done whatever they have wanted to do. They've indulged themselves in drugs and in alcohol and many other things, and the result is that they have destroyed their lives. The lusts war against the soul, as uh, Peter warned us in 1 Peter. And so this we've created a culture that is focused on self-love. And from the modern psychologists, they have told us that the real problem isn't sin. The real problem is a lack of self-esteem. We don't love ourselves enough. And that's one issue that we're going to have to spend a little time on because a lot of people think that self-esteem is a legitimate category. And it is not. If you define anybody's problem with human viewpoint terminology, then you will force yourself into defining the solution through human viewpoint. Do not be sucked into uh, human viewpoint terminology. So what we end up with in this kind of terminology is we no longer refer to alcoholism as sin. It is a disease. We no longer uh, define somebody who is in denial as a liar, we we have avoided these terms. Oh, that's too judgmental. We can't say that. Uh, we can't define things as sin because we've rejected the whole concept of sin and right and wrong. And so, last time I spent time on that, uh, talking some, uh, leading from our uh, reference to Jeremiah 17:9, that the heart. That is the inner man. Remember that Paul uses that term a few times, the inner man, and that is the same basic reference as the heart. It's the core of a person. The heart, the inner man, is deceitful above all things. Why? It's the sin nature. And desperately sick, who can understand it? So as I pointed out under the third point that the personal challenge for each of us is that we face problems in life. Life doesn't go the way we want it to. We don't get what we want. Life is outside of our control. And so we throw our little pity parties. We throw our temper tantrums. And we seek to blame someone else or something else for our problems and we become victims and this whole arena of victimology has dominated and in victimology we have violated the first divine institution which is individual human responsibility we may not be responsible for what happens to us but we are responsible for how we respond to it and when we let the circumstances around us determine our mental attitude, determine how we react, how we respond, then we become slaves to that external uh, circumstance. So we looked last time at the whole problem of the sin nature, and I, we talked about Matthew 15, 19, out of the heart, same reference like we have in Je- Jeremiah 17, 9, proceed evil thoughts, Murders, adulteries, fornication, thefts, false witness, blasphemies, drug addiction, drug addiction. There's another term. It's not addiction. It's a bad habit. It's a wrong volitional habit. It's it's not an addiction. Addiction makes you passive. Now there are. I know there are certain drugs that do create a physical dependency, and we recognize that. But. At the core, it just, we get into a bad habit and it starts between our ears. We have a bad habit of thinking uh, about the circumstances of life and the problems of life. We talked about the sin nature. This is so integral. Nobody believes in sin anymore, it's considered old fashioned. And everybody is basically good. So we have a whole generation of millennials coming up now who are pursuing a very utopic vision. They're falling in love with socialism. Socialism and Marxism are utopic philosophies. And there's no utopia this side of Jesus Christ returning to the earth and rolling back the curse to some degree. Because of the curse of sin, we will never have perfection. We will never have a utopic world. There will, the poor will be with us always. That doesn't mean that we're cold and we're callous and we're not compassionate in a in a genuine way. But it means that we know we can't end it. That man is not perfectible. Society is not perfectible. And therefore, the purpose of government uh, is not to perfect the circumstances of our lives. It is to help us restrain the impulses and the lusts of our sin nature. <clears throat> First Peter 2.11, Peter said, Behold, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. And we have to recognize that sin nature is our problem. And that that sin nature is a war, is a, at war with our soul. And that we're the umpire, as it were. We're the ones who say yes or no. We're going to let it uh, destroy us or we're going to fight against it. And we have to fight against it with the armor of God and with the spiritual skills that God has given to us. And then we come to uh, the fifth point. Last time is that the confrontation is in our soul, and it's it's a thought battle. At the very core, it's a thought battle. Are you going to think according to the uh, the principles of man, or are you going to uh, are you going to think according to the revealed principles of God that are laid out uh, laid out in the Scripture on Tuesday night? We went through Psalm 60 that ended by saying, in verse 11, Psalm 60, 11, give us help from trouble. God is the one who gives us the help from adversity. No matter what the adversity is, no matter how horrible it may be, you just think of some of these poor folks who live in the Bahamas, and they've lost absolutely everything. Nothing, nothing left. And they just some of them just barely survived. God can handle that. They're, they may not have the life that they had hoped for or anticipated, but God helps us deal with those disappointments. And we have to realize that God had a different plan. He allowed something else to happen, and we can have a choice. We can get mad at him. We can get mad at others. We can just sulk in a depression and we can give up or we can recognize that God can handle everything. And so in Psalm 60, verse 11, give us help from trouble for the help of man is useless. Let's get more pointed for psychology is useless for sociology is useless Evolutionary theory is useless. All of these systems came out of the mid-19th century, that uh, the psychology, the whole psychotherapeutic movement that the solution is in somehow drilling down into uh, understanding all of these past repressed memories and and all kinds of different things, that that, that's the only way you can deal with your life that that just says everybody who lived in the bible had they, they had no clue we had to wait until freud came along and rogers and maslow and others and we had to wait for that information that is blasphemy and yet you have many many seminary professors who uh who think that that is absolutely correct it's divine viewpoint what does the word of god say Versus human viewpoint, what does man say First corinthians two two through five Paul makes this very clear as he introduces this his epistle, his letter to the Corinthians. he recognizes that this is a core problem uh, romans twelve two tells us that we are to be transformed by the renewing of our mind, be transformed by the renewing of our mind, we have to exchange the human viewpoint garbage that we've been brainwashed by, to some degree, parents, friends, peers, teachers, and we have to replace that with the truth of God's Word. It doesn't happen overnight. It takes time because we have an internal enemy that is trying to prevent that day in and day out, and that's our sin nature. So there's always that internal conflict. There's other solutions that seem to be much more attractive. They put the blame somewhere else. They don't have this ugly doctrine of total depravity. Now, total depravity doesn't mean that you're as bad as you can be. It means that every aspect of your being has been corrupted by sin. Doesn't mean you can't do good things. Jesus recognized that. he talked to his disciples and he said, "Uh, how can you being evil? Now, that must have made them very happy. Jesus just called them evil. These are his buds. These are his closest associates. And he says, how can you being evil give good gifts to your children? See, evil people can do relatively good things, and so when we talk about evil, the unbelieving world just goes absolutely berserk. I am convinced that the reason that we saw the one of the reasons we saw the hostility develop for for George Bush, George W. Bush, first of all, it was because uh the the liberals just went absolutely crazy. The Democrats went crazy over the hanging chads, and they thought, they convinced themselves that George W. Bush lost the, really lost the election, and nothing would convince them of anything else, so they already didn't like him. But after 9-11, when he identified the perpetrators as evildoers... By using that term, he demonstrated that he was thinking in terms of a more biblical framework. And that just drove the left nuts because they don't want to believe in something that is absolute evil. And yet the Bible says we're all evil. Even Jesus called his disciples and they were saved as as basically still evil they still had a sin nature and they still had to deal with that and so as, as Paul is writing the Corinthians who still had a major sin problem one of their problems was they were still thinking like unbelievers and they still had a world view that was shaped by Greek philosophical thinking it was intellectual it was sophisticated it was something to be proud of and that's what Paul talks about when he talks about and contrasts the wisdom of God with the foolishness of man. He's talking about the foolishness of man, that Socrates and Aristotle and Plato and all of the Greek philosophical systems. And he said to them, For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Well, wait a minute, Paul, wouldn't it have been nice to have helped everybody with their problems and talked to them about the need for self-love and self-esteem and all those other things? No, we have to understand, sin's the problem, Jesus solved the problem, that's the starting point. It's not about self-love, self-image and all that. You already have more self-love than, than, than you can imagine, and that's your problem. He says in verse 3, I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. We see the passion of Paul to communicate the sufficiency of the cross. And he says in my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom. What he meant by that is that he didn't follow the sophisticated rhetorical styles of the philosophers, the intellectual elites of his day. He wasn't going to persuade them by his rhetoric. But in demonstration of the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, and of power, the power is in God. Now that fit takes us back to understanding what Peter is saying there in Second Peter 1.3. It's by or because of God's power, what he gave us and has provided for us. So it's, a, it's, it's totally juxtaposed. When you start talking about God's power, it is juxtaposing the solution with man's solution. Man's solution is based in man's ability and man's power and in man's thought. So it's human viewpoint, human wisdom, versus the, the wisdom and the power of God. Verse 5, "...that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men." but in the power of God. Do we think God really has the power to handle our problems and to solve our problems? This is the real issue when it comes to, comes to the sufficiency of, of Scripture. Are we able to trust in the omnipotence of God? So as we talk about the sufficiency of Scripture... It automatically entails two other things. You can't separate these. We talk about the sufficiency of Scripture, we talk about the sufficiency of grace, and we talk about the sufficiency of the cross. Those are all interconnected and interdependent. That God is enough, we know He's enough through the Scripture. It tells us just exactly how He is enough. It is through what He teaches us, the truth, and it is through His power and His provision of god the holy spirit all of that comes because the cross is sufficient to deal with our sin that's the problem we have to understand that now that is often misunderstood and abused by evangelicals mostly in legalism that they want people to get rid of the sin in their life and so they they force everybody to be guilty about the sin in their life and the solution is to understand grace and forgiveness and that deals with a lot of, of of past issues if we just come to understand the sufficiency of God's grace in forgiving us of whatever we've got in our past, whatever the problems were, whatever the situation was, God's grace handles it. We're forgiven, and we are cleansed, and we are new creatures in Christ. And even if it happens after we're saved, because of God's grace, there is cleansing and there is forgiveness. No matter what the situation was or what our culpability was, uh, God can handle it. So when we uh, looked at the at as the last our last lesson, and we talked about this whole problem of sin, that is in contrast to the solution from our in psychology, and the solution in psychotherapy, because in all of the all of this christian systems and i remember back in the 80s going through lots of studies on these things trying to find out just is there any hope or place for so-called christian psychology and what i discovered is what a lot of other people have discovered is there's about 2 or 300 different models of human behavior. Now, a model of human behavior is somebody saying, this is why people act the way they do. Okay? And so some people have totally biological models of human behavior. Others have uh, all kinds of different models. There's about two or three hundred. So when you go to a counselor, a psychotherapist, which model of human behavior does he have? See, over against those 300 models of human behaviors, the biblical model, and the biblical model says the real problem is sin. Sin is ignored by the other 300 or... And then what happens when Christians come along, they go to schools where they get advanced degrees in psychology and counseling, and then they come back and they say... uh, they, They try to integrate. So they're called integrationists. They try to integrate all of these uh, human viewpoint models with uh, their understanding of the scripture. And all they're doing is they're wrapping up a human viewpoint system in Christian verbiage and Christian language. And they're just tacking on Bible verses. And this is uh, highly deceptive. There's no real exegetical foundation for for any any of those things. So... As I pointed out, in the last 2,000 years of Christianity and 6,000 years of biblical revelation going back to the fall, the problem was never phrased anywhere in Scripture as a problem related to self-esteem or self-love. In fact, the whole problem is arrogance, which is self-love. It is an inflated view of self in just a simple form. And that is the core of sin, that it's all about me. And we're totally absorbed with, with who we are. And so in this study of Peter, what we see is that Peter emphasizes, a: if the problem is self, if self-love, then, then the problem is that we don't love ourselves, and so we have to learn how to love ourselves. And we don't have to learn to love ourselves. When you have the commandment in Leviticus 18, love your neighbor as yourself, it doesn't say you have to learn to love yourself before you can learn to love your neighbor. That is what false teachers taught. It came out of human viewpoint psychology. It was picked up by people like Norman Vincent Peale and Robert Schuller and their whole view on on self-esteem and self-image and that you need to first learn to love yourself. But Scripture says you're born loving yourself. That's why it doesn't say learn to love yourself then love your neighbor. It says love your neighbor as yourself. You're already loving yourself. Now you need to put your neighbor first and love them instead of yourself. The problem is the self. We have a highly inflated view of who we are. And so... Uh, the solution, the problem is sin, and the solution to sin is always God's solution, God's grace, and what he has revealed in, in the Scripture. And because it relates to what God has revealed, we have to learn what God has revealed. And so that means that a large part of the solution is related to knowledge. And that's exactly what Peter emphasizes. For example, when we get to the end of 2 Peter... In 2 Peter 3.18, Peter says, but grow in your self-love. He didn't say that, did he? No. He said, get a better self-esteem. No, he didn't say that. He said, grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have to replace our love for self with our with a love for the Savior and a focus on the Savior. So what he says is that we are to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ not in the knowledge of our past victimizations, our failed relationships with parents, our siblings or abusers, but we the solution is first of all in growing in grace. Grace solves the problem because we know that we are forgiven and we are totally accepted and loved by God, and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we have to learn about who he is and what he has done for us, and that becomes the focal point is changing the knowledge, the human viewpoint knowledge in our soul for uh, what the knowledge of Christ. And this goes back, this is what this book is introduced with, that in one, two, he, Peter says, "Grace and peace are multiplied to us in the knowledge which should be translated by the knowledge or by means of the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord." So this whole epistle is bracketed with an emphasis on the the means to dealing with the false teachers and getting rid of all their garbage has to do with knowledge of God and the Lord Jesus Christ." And then when we look at verse 3, verse 3 says that it's His divine power. That's one of the first things that we need to learn as believers is the essence of God, His attributes. And we have to learn that God is all-powerful. And so He is more powerful than anything that we're going to run into. So we come to Ephesians 1, 18. At 18 to 20. Now, I cut into the middle of verse 18 here, but we're studying this on Sunday morning. So, this is one of those places where what we're learning on Thursday night is related to what we just learned on Tuesday night. And we're going to learn more related to this on Sunday morning as we get into these passages. But this is what Paul prays for he prays that you would come to accept yourself. He prays that you would love yourself. He doesn't do that, does he? In fact, a lot of people look at these prayers and go, I just don't understand that. That just doesn't relate to my life. That's because you're just an arrogant, self-absorbed, self-loving, whiny baby, and you need to get have the word of God shake you up just a little bit. Paul prays for what ought to be prayed for, not for what most people think they should be praying for, which is solving their little pet needs and problems, that you may know what is the hope of his calling. Now, that's a great phrase. The purpose of our life doesn't say so you can know yourself better. Know why he called you and what that leads to. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And then look at the third one. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe? Exceeding greatness of his power. Can he say it in another way that would make the emphasis on his power more powerful? Is there a problem in your life that the exceeding greatness of his power can't address? There's not one, I don't care how bad it is. I don't care if you're standing on the beaches of, of, of the Bahamas with absolutely nothing and having lost all of your family. I'm sure there'll be situations like that, or, or any other type of situation that God can't handle. With the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to what? According to the working of his mighty power. Wow. Almost think it 's god 's power we have to come to understand it 's more it 's greater and more capable and more able than anything you or I can come up with on our own apart from the Word of god and it 's exemplified by the resurrection power of Jesus Christ that rose him from the dead and then when we look at the end of Ephesians, we have this exhortation in verse uh, chapter six, verse ten, finally, my brethren. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. It's all about the Lord. It is not about getting to know ourselves better. It's not about drilling down into the subterranean dregs of your subconscious so that you can wallow in self-pity. That's not what it's about. And then we get into Ephesians 3.16. Now this third chapter, we're going to have such a glorious time when we get there. When we get into Ephesians 3:16, uh, we're going to find out that again, that pa- Paul is emphasizing in a prayer the power of God. He says that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory. And there he's using glory to summarize his essence, according to the wealth of his essence to be strengthened with might through the Spirit in the inner man. It is being strengthened by the Holy Spirit that enables us to face the issues in life. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and the length and the depth and the height. Now a lot of people get wrapped up on that. All this is just hyperbole. It's a the the incredible extent of God's grace. That's all that's talking about. That will can get just an inkling of how great and how magnificent and how expansive the grace of God is. Now. We find ourselves at the beginning of the 21st century. And we find a Christian church, I use that in the broad sense, not local church, a Christianity, an evangelical Christianity, a so-called Bible-believing Christianity that no longer practically believes in the power of God. The power that was exhibited in the resurrection. The power that enables God to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to that power working in us. That's what Paul says in verse 19. Or verse 20. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. Now think of people's problems. Think of your problems. Think of the time in your life when you had just overwhelming problems. God... Paul says that God can handle that in a way that is exceedingly abundant beyond anything that you can ask or think. That's an incredible promise right there. That how when I'm facing times when I've just been wiped out, when you don't know how you're going to pay your next bill, when you don't know what you're going to do next, when you feel like you're just surrounded by By problems and everything goes in the wrong direction. God can handle it far beyond anything that you can ask or think. And that's why God put you in that situation. That's why God put me in that situation, is to learn to trust God and that He can handle the circumstance and the situation far beyond anything that we can ask or think. And so modern man tries to shift the whole. Uh, the whole definition of the problem and the whole de- and that changes the definition of the solution. We live in a world that Peter was warning his readers about, and that is a world that is dominated by false teaching, by pagan ideas, by a rejection of God, a rejection of his power and rejection of his provision for us. And we can look around us, and we can look at all the so-called great seminaries that have been out there for the last hundred years, and every one of them have have sacrificed the integrity of God's essence and the integrity of Scripture for a human solution. I don't know of one. That's one reason you've had Chafer Seminary start, Tyndale Seminary these are schools that are young, who are firm believers in the sufficiency of Scripture. There's a free grace seminary, I think, in Atlanta. There's some others that are out there. They're all small. But this is one of the things that is common, uh, common to many of them. But the larger, more established schools have all compromised in this particular area. And so they have learned because they have been taught well by their father, the devil, that, and he's remembered the most subtle, the most sophisticated, the most scheming, the craftiest person in the garden. Where, you listen to them present their case. Oh, it just sounds so good. But the bottom line is, they're saying the solution lies in information that's not in the Bible. That we have to get certain information that's not in the Bible, in order to handle these particular. Uh, particular situations, uh, often the unexpressed view that you will hear from Christian psychologists is one that was written out in a in a note to a pastor who and and this is expresses the views that I have seen and heard from many people a, ve- a frustration that oh, you go to church and you listen to all that Bible teaching but it, it just doesn't work for me. Well, that's for other reasons. It doesn't work for you not because it can't work. It's because you don't want it to, and you've got sin in your life and other problems. But here's how the complaint is often expressed. Reminders of God's love and exhortations to meditate on Jesus' care sometimes provides about as much help as handing out recipes to people waiting in a food line. That's how they think of it. They say, we have to do more. What, what we see across the, across the spectrum in our culture is people do not appreciate the value and the significance of individual volition. You can provide all the best Bible teaching in the world to people, but if they're truly not positive in that area in their life, they don't really want to deal with some sin in their life, they don't want to change their... Direction their goal, the sins working for them, then they're not going to listen, they're not going to apply, and it's just going to lead to uh, to greater to greater problems. But the scriptures again and again emphasize the importance of that relationship with the Lord. second thessalonians three: five Paul says, "Now may the Lord direct your hearts into the love for God and into the patience the endurance of christ the endurance of christ enabled him to go through all of that suffering in the garden of gethsemane and then later on the cross he endured the suffering on the cross for the hope that was set before him that took self discipline it's it's not this idea that i need to have what i need and want now it's not self indulgence It is self-discipline and recognizing that we're going to face a lot of situations in life that may be extremely unpleasant, that we may not get the responses that we want, but we're not going to react according to our sin nature in mental attitude sins, or sins of the tongue, or overt sins, but it's just going to drive us closer to the Lord. Psalm sixty-two, eight: trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge to us. Isn't that great? When's the last time you poured out your heart to God? Sometimes we have to really be knocked flat on our back before that happens. But it is this expression of total dependence, radical dependence upon God. 2 Corinthians twelve nine. We'll get to 2 Corinthians 12. That's probably the second most significant passage in the New Testament on sufficiency of grace. And Paul says, and he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. This is when he's plagued by the thorn of the flesh. And he prays three times for God to remove it. And God says, no, I'm going to leave it there so you will learn that my grace is sufficient for you. I'm not going to take it away. You're going to live with that that problem, and God said, "My grace is sufficient for you; for my strength is made perfect in weakness." Therefore, most gladly I will rather boast in my infirmities. See, that's not having a good self-image. That the power of Christ may rest upon me. See, the Scripture never says anything about that God cares about your self-image. What God cares about is, what does Romans eight twenty nine say? To conform us to the image of Christ. That's what God cares about, is creating the image of Christ in each one of us. It's not about thinking highly of ourselves, because we already do that. There's a great hymn. I love singing this hymn. It's by Philip Bliss. Hallelujah, what a Savior. This is the kind of solid doctrine that informs a good hymn. It's based on the allusion, a reference to Christ as a man of sorrows in Isaiah 53. Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came. And how are we described? Ruined sinners. See, historical biblical orthodoxy Recognize that we are not wonderful. We're ruined sinners. That comes across in that hymn. And then in the third verse, we're referred to in very complimentary terms. Guilty, vile, and helpless we. Now, one reason I brought this up is because when I was in my second church, which was when I was pastoring when I was in Irving. One of the questions that a lady in the church asked me, she said, do you believe in worm theology? This was during the interview process as I was candidating for the church. And I said, what do you mean? He said, you know, like in that old hymn that we're just worms. We have better self-esteem. It turned out, it turned out that, that her husband was a Christian psychologist. And he was one of the two or three people that started the church. And the core group of that church were a bunch of his patients. And I have never seen a bunch of people that were more spiritual basket cases and so absorbed with their problems as as in that church. And I came in and I started teaching the word and started going through a lot of these principles on the sufficiency of grace. And the Christian counselor lasted about not even two months. He and his wife were gone, but I would get feedback on all the negative things they were saying about me uh, around. And it wasn't long before they both got involved in affairs, I think, and their marriage fell apart and the kids went berserk. I mean, it was just a really, really tragic and and sad case. And I actually ran into the guy at pre-trib about three or four years ago. And he looked, what do we say in Texas? He looked like 20 miles of bad road. He's at, he was actually younger than than I, but he looked ten years older. He just looked like he'd been rode hard and put up wet. Texas has such great sayings, but it's a it, it, it's because they just all these people and I had to deal with with and there were these there was about five women who had and they had real tragedies and adversities in their life, but oh, were they mired and all this self-image stuff, and it was just terrible, just terrible. And and that term, worm theology, and there's a whole lot of Christians out there who just hate this hymn by Isaac Watts. And if you look in your hymnal, I don't know if it, I haven't looked at ours lately, but they'll change the word to for such a one as I because, oh, we don't think of ourselves as worms. We're a lot more valuable than that. Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? Because we're fallen, depraved, spiritually dead rebels against the Almighty Creator God of the universe. And we have no more significance as sinners, unsaved, spiritually dead sinners, than a worm. We're not valuable, but God still loved us. And in the chorus, the chorus goes, at the cross, at the cross where I first saw the light, and the burden of my heart rolled away. Notice, the burden gets rolled away. The problem is gone. The depression, the anger, that whatever it is, it's gone. It was there by faith I received my sight, and now I am happy all the day. The solution is the cross and the grace of God and these and and the scriptures. So we have to learn to focus on on that. So I'm going to end here tonight and we'll get back to the next point number 6 next time talking more about what the scripture says about how psychology derives from the wisdom of man and where with the wisdom of man ultimately derives. We'll see that next time. Father, thank you for this opportunity to remind us of your greatness, of your power, of your ability to uh, provide for us and to sustain us in the most incredibly awful of circumstances. All we need to do is learn to trust you, rely upon you, and to obey your word and to trust you and trust you alone. Father, strengthen our faith As we study your word, may God, the Holy Spirit, strengthen us and encourage us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.